Turns out he's a major cinephile. They don't watch enough movies! It's a very simple formula! And here we go. Hey loyal listeners and newcomers alike, welcome to Nick Knack Goes to the Movies, the pop culture palooza that has captivated and took the internet and social media by storm. Time for another non-superhero or horror episode. Instead, this is a super family-friendly content piece all about the latest animated things available on Disney+. Sure, I might be a bit late to the party at the virtual House of Mouse, but for the most part, we all got Disney Plus for the nostalgia and rewatches. The new content is more of an added bonus, especially the exclusive content. And as I still have yet to indulge in any Disney Plus Premiere Access content, this is the first time I will be seeing Raya and the Last Dragon, as well as the has-been-free, not having to wait for any Disney Plus Premiere stuff just like Onward was before it, Luca. I was going to try and add Cruella into the mix too, but we'll have to wait a little bit longer for Emma Stone and Mark Strong to be available with the usual Disney Plus monthly fee and nothing more. So time to get lost in that Disney Studios animated magic and see if Raya and the Last Dragon soars high or flies too close to the sun like Icarus and comes crashing down. So let's get into the cast for Ryan the Last Dragon because I am all about it. The lead actor is Kelly Marie Tran, who you will obviously know from the Star Wars sequels, a franchise that never really knew what to do with her character, unfortunately. Aquafina is here too, and she will soon enough be gracing us with a live-action role in Marvel's next movie and the true start to Phase 4 in Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings. She is not the only Marvel actor here as well. Benedict Wong is both in this movie and he too will have a role in Shang-Chi. The Marvel Marathon doesn't end there as Gemma Chen is here and will be seen for the second time in the MCU as a different character. She looks to be a lead if not the lead in The Eternals. Sandra Oh is here and oh how I really need to start killing Eve one of these days. I have heard from many of you that it is right up my alley. Lastly, I just want to take a brief mention for both Daniel Day Kim, one of the best parts of the irreverent GTA parody that I have grown to like a little more, maybe a hot take in Saints Row, as well as Alan Tudjik, who doesn't have a real speaking role here. He's more of making creature sounds, but in general to him at this point, he doesn't need any introduction. Just want to appreciate him for, you know, Rogue One, Firefly, and many a more. As someone who thought Onward was a bit of a drop-off for the Disney movies in the fantasy world, and Mulan live-action was a abomination of the animated version, at least Soul was good. But Soul felt a bit familiar at times, and while it was definitely good, there's something about the more mystical Disney movies that have no real ties to something like the everyday American world. So I was super hopeful for Raya to be a bit more akin to Frozen or something else like a historical fiction period piece. The setup is something that will feel super familiar to both How to Train Your Dragon and just other more family-friendly dystopian things. I like the visual settings of the more mystical world. It's very cool. These movies are truly the most special when they lean into some of the tried and true elements of Disney magic. That and showing off these super cool settings overall. But pretty early on, you can see this is a like a third Mulan, a third Moana, and a third of its own thing. 
that isn't a bad thing, but it's a bit unfortunate when a bunch of it feels similar, especially with Moana feeling not too far in the past. If nothing else, this movie does have a fun way of tricking and subverting audience expectations between the first piece of combat being a fun father-daughter moment to seemingly a bountiful assortment of villages coming together for peace and instead having a you know potential oh some cute friendship of kids from different areas coming together to a mad romp to get control of the last piece of magic this movie did eventually surprise me more than once and it wouldn't be a disney movie without a disney parent mostly dads not making it and while the villain is clearly supposed to be greed and lack of understanding of multiple perspectives the creature baddie looks pretty scary of black and purple smoke and the entire concept of splitting every time it turns someone to stone is pretty heavy for a Disney movie. But a lot of these movies tend to be a bit more uh, dark than we realize. I mean, Hunchback of Notre Dame people, am I right? I do not love the creative decision to make the dragon like not only talking, but like sassy talking. I mean, I know this is a huge part of Mulan and why I like the animated version better than the live action one but Mushu feels so much better than Sisu I wish they gave Sisu the toothless treatment but the huge evil cats speaking of other creatures in the movie are amazing fingers crossed Nick adopting a cat is coming sooner rather than later that being said well I don't love that part and in general the movie takes a bit of a lull after the explosive beginning this fetch quest that belongs in a video game has some super fun stops the market city is a big standout not only for the setting but just the adorable sidekicks of a thieving baby and some cute i don't know creatures i don't actually know what they're supposed to be sometimes disney puts in too many sidekicks to work and they crank the cuteness up to 11 but for some reason i was all about it here and the themes of greed and betrayal once again pop up here and it's a fun theme to get into it may not be a perfect film but I really do like the core morals and messaging the perspectives thing about seeing things from someone else's viewpoint to seeing the side effects of both greed and self-isolation the whole movie is about bringing gems together but along the way they bring people together from all different walks of life and villages and yes the dragon powers are a visual spectacle to behold as more and more come, like I said once before. I don't just love the goofy dragon personality nearly as much. Maybe it is not the dragon talking, but instead more of the annoying modern jokes. I mean, a silent dragon could obviously have worked, but some of the history story parts and some moral compass moments might be a bit much to get across without a speaking dragon. And the unbridled hope is a needed element. But the jokes are just not it, or at least not for me. I mean, they do need jokes for kids in a kid's movie, but as I've said already, there are jokes for all ages, and making dumb jokes for a kid's movie, to me, just seems like lazy writing. But we get through a good chunk of this movie. Things are, you know, it's an adventure. It doesn't seem too, too dark after the beginning. But, yo, <laughs> this movie got super dark in the last 30 minutes between crossbowing a dragon the last dragon to smoke monsters invading the last beacon of civilization omg what a wild set piece moment that you know it had game of thrones lord of the rings and like mount vesuvius volcano vibes 
and even though it's so dark and all hope seems lost, that's how it's supposed to be for a little bit before everything comes back. That's the whole arc and trajectory of like a good story. Oh man, the end was actually like pretty cute. Everyone gives their gems and sacrifices themselves to the person most of them blamed for breaking the world to begin with. The end is actually like very good taking the main character out of the movie and for a brief moment feeling like the OG Pokemon movie, which I've talked about a few times, was so good in theaters. But there's this moment of, you know, Ash turns to stone, but here it's like tenfold where everyone seems to have lost and all the dragons and people are gone. But when it all finally comes together, the stone, the rain, and everyone is rejuvenated and everything works out, it feels truly earned and special. The end is just so happy, and gosh, it makes you smile and tear up a bit. I mean, it's no Coco, but nothing is and nothing ever will be. But seeing everyone reunited with their people, uh, and then not just their own people, but everyone comes together, just like Daniel Day Kim's character wanted to all in the beginning, it's so good and strong. I do wish the dragons were just a bit bigger, like maybe they started small without the magic, but in the end they were all a little bit bigger, I don't know. That was my last point i do like ryan the last dragon the points and morals it sets out to make are very good the voice actor pedigree and just the overall visuals look great but making the dragons more like a strange hybrid of mushu and like the genie instead of toothless and it pulls a lot of familiar story beats from both moana and mulan leave this one at three and a half stars on letterbox for me but the beginning and end are super strong First thing I got to imagine most people noticed about Luca, I'm sure that I did, I mean I know I did, was the animation style was a bit different to their modern 3D Disney look, even at the tail end of more solo Pixar, but you know, the contrast this style to like Soul, Raya, Coco, and more, like the people look to be based off a bit more realism. Even the 2D characters kind of went that route for the most part. Luca's characters, even the human ones, look to just be animated differently. Not saying this is a bad thing. Into the Spider-Verse had a unique animation style and I really like all the things about that movie and can't wait for the sequel. So on to the actors here. Jacob Tremblay is starting to come into a bit more relevance for a young actor, having a small stint in the animated Harley Quinn show being in the worst Predator movie, and while I haven't seen Good Boys yet, I feel like I need to get on that, as well as Booksmart, the pseudo-super-bad spiritual successor style of movie. Jack Dylan Glazer is also in this from both the It reboot movies as well as a pivotal role in the Shazam movies, one of the most forgotten about and underappreciated DCEU things that has existed. Weirdly, you would think he would be in Stranger Things at some point, but as of yet, that has somehow not been the case. They had to get some adults in here, and both Maya Rudolph and Jim Gaffigan have brought something quality to, you know, just have around here. Small nod to Sasha Baron Cohen, who has a very small role in this movie, but just overall. I know everyone thinks of him as Borat or Ali G. I did actually like the second Borat a bit more with the sweet story at shoehorned in there. But I really do like him in the other roles, specifically his musical roles, both Sweeney Todd and Les Mis. And he is also pretty good in Hugo. I'm super curious to see his serious work in both The Spy and The Trial of the Chicago 7. In short, I hope people will come to know him for his movies outside of Borat, The Dictator, and Bruno. Not unlike Good Boys, Superbad, American Pie, and Booksmart, 
This is a coming-of-age story, albeit a much less risque one. I can't come up with one off the top of my head, but in general, I do like these types of movies. I mean, Big Mouth is all about this, but that is too <laughs> a bit risque. But I stand by my stance that viewing that in health class in school with a parent permission slip would be super advantageous to dealing with all the awkwardness of puberty and growing up and just life overall. That show really does have something for everyone. Let's be real here. You're going to get Little Mermaid and Finding Nebo vibes from this movie by, you know, wanting to explore the world out there, of course, and just water and fish and other similarities. But somehow the wonders of the ocean feel better here than ever before, even if they don't spend nearly as much time there as you would think. Maybe going, you know, in a different direction from being less human mermaid folks, keeping them, you know, Italian like those above them is a really nice touch. And overall, yeah, I just feel this is made a bit more lovingly than Little Mermaid, where most comparisons will exist. That movie, Little Mermaid, is famously panned, mostly for its lack of a strong female lead who gives a lot up for a dreamy prince. Don't get me wrong, that movie has a great female villain in Ursula, her song is pretty gosh darn good to boot, and every Sebastian song is great. The music in Little Mermaid is probably better than I would say the movie of Little Mermaid is. There's a weird point when they were transitioning to, I think, like stronger female leads, and Little Mermaid was probably the peak of it not really being right at the moment. But somehow in this movie, the wonder of the sea is so nice here, and I really do like the music blending nautical wonder and Italian charm. The parental pressure is for sure here in Luca, to be expected. If parents aren't tragically killed in Disney movies, they mostly are fixed and set in their old ways to their detriment, like Mulan and Little Mermaid, for example. I think making the transformation from sea creature to human innate and more of a personal choice is better for the story. I mean, I'm sure people will get some H2O aquamarine like joke vibes, unfortunately. I think those are very cheesy, strange movies. I mean, seemingly, if you want, you can go back and forth between land and sea as much as you want in this movie, and the movie does ask that question, why would you not? Other than, I guess, fear of being persecuted and hunted by, you know, people with harpoons and stuff for being a sea monster and being what you are. But it's not like you get wet. Oh, Cleo, no, I'm wet. (laughs) Gosh, those under-the-sea live-action person mermaid movies are not so good. Something I did not expect was to be as invested in seeing the non-under-the-sea land and still being all of the beauty the animators put into this part of the world. I really did expect more time to be under the water than above land, and the fact that it wasn't is not really, I don't think, a huge loss at all. I mean, as much as I love Coco, you know it may be my favorite Disney movie of all time, somewhere in the mix of Prince and the Frog and Hercules. But the majestic nature of the human world pairs in comparison to, like, the land of the dead. I mean, that world in Coco is so, so good. Maybe it's the lack of world stakes in this movie, but instead, Disney has in front of us a more personal, intimate story of growing up that feels a bit like comfort viewing, but seeing the blossoming friendship between two sea monsters, one who is more of a, air quotes, expert of the land... The eventual fascination of building a Vespa and the daydreaming. Honestly, I can't help but smile. Like, smile so much watching this movie, especially early on. While the soundtrack music is good, the Italian songs with lyrics specifically are 
immediately being added to my Spotify to be binged over and over again. Specifically, Il Gatto e la Volpe is such a like walking on sunshine kind of upbeat vibe. I feel like I somehow vibe with the parent story a little more here than Onward. But if I was a parent, I feel like Onward would be even more my speed. I swear I don't hate that movie or anything. The end is really good and emotional. I just don't care for the world as much as a ton of the other modern-ish based Disney worlds. But yeah, the parents' overprotective nature is a bit more one-dimensional here. It does take a little bit to get into, but even at the end of it still feels a little less developed. But this is a story more so about three kids coming into their own in their individual stories. More so specifically the two sea monster kids, but Julia gets a little bit in there. And once we do get to the Italian village, you know, the fun doesn't end there. From our group of two becoming three with the ad of this girl who seems to be an outsider even in this little area. More Vespa dream montages, which is the more the better. And in general, there just seems to be so much TLC from both growing up to making sure there's Italian things featured in this world. It is beautiful. I do love that Julia's dad in this is this tough, no-nonsense guy who has a cat who looks exactly the same, even with the fur that looks like a bushy mustache. I do love that that notion of people look like their pets, and this movie for sure goes hard into that trope. Their bully, who has his own Vespa, is also a great low-stakes version of an actual person of conflict. And how strange and wonderful is it that this triathlon in Luca is biking, swimming, and eating pasta. This reminds me of my Crave race in college, like a case race, but with each team having, I think it was a 30 rack, a bottle of wine, a few shots, a cake, and maybe a chunk of a sheet pizza. I was the eater on the leg, hoping to be locked in on like the wine and the pizza and avoid the not-so-great college beer. Our team did not win, the wing team had someone throw up and no one threw up on our side, so it feels like at least a moral victory, if not more. It wouldn't be a true Italian movie without some form of soccer. You know me, love my European soccer, love that Euros tournament we saw, can't wait for the World Cup. I'm just a big soccer myself. And seeing Maya Rudolph's character body kids into a fountain while doing soccer was very, very good for another just Italian moment. Oh man. Every dream sequence, not just the Vespa ones, but overall, is breathtaking to behold. Maybe I'm just all into Italian things, but even seeing references to, you know, like Da Vinci's inventions, like it's a love letter, and a lot of that Italian stuff I do get, of course, from the Ezio trilogy of Assassin's Creed games. We need some more Assassin's Creed games on the Switch. I have up to uh, Black Flag and Rogue on the PS3, but we need a little more, and I don't mean those annoying cloud server based ones i live with it for hitman but i'm not living with it for everything come on nintendo get some assassin's creed up there asap the fun counterpoint to seeing uh luca learning get close to julia you know yes alberto's gets a bit jealous of losing someone the first person who's ever really truly been close with in ages so that we learn later on of course you know luca's parents are still in this human world a world that they're trying to navigate for the first time that they would never want to be a part of you know, I do like that their new plan is seemingly finding more aggressive ways to get every kid wet to try and find their kid turning into a mermaid. And yes, their parent realization to keeping their kids safe and at what cost, it's a nice come up learning moment. You know, the dangers are always there. 
They seem farcical, but hunting sea monsters is always talked about with the posters and everything like that. The big issue, of course, comes with Alberto revealing himself to be a sea monster. You know, he's doing it out of jealousy, and when Luca betrays him and can't reveal himself, he's too scared to do it. It's devastating, in the same way that it's heartwarming to see Julia's father, Massimo, go out of his way to look for Alberto, no matter what. And as they formed like a special bond, unbeknownst to Alberto, who feels forever alone, hiding his feelings with confidence. After, you know, we learn that, oh, his dad lets him do whatever he wants. We never see his dad because his dad left forever ago. And he's just, you know, Alberto is putting up this defense mechanism to appear confident and know what he's doing. And, you know, there's so much deep psychology, trauma, therapy things. You know, that's my favorites in movies. And Disney likes to have bits, if not all those things, thrown into their movies. Gosh, so much to really dive into that I probably am not even the, you know, if you had a therapy doctorate degrees, I'm sure there's a lot you could pull from this movie. That would be a really interesting case study or thesis you could pull from this. But I like watching this movie. I was tearing up with, you know, there's that notion of, you know, silencing your inner voice in your head. And that was like a main thing from beginning to later. And it's like the one that's either trying to be overprotective or like self-doubt, Silencio Bruno, it's so good, and so short and snappy, who knows, I might even use that now that I'm thinking about it, the fight was like pretty sad between these friends, but thankfully in the end, when Luca and Alberto come together, you know, there's the the fun race sequence from the different stages, and everyone split up on themselves, but you know, when the rain begins to fall, and Luca has to stop the race, Alberto comes to his aid with an umbrella, and when he turned into a sea monster. Luca instead chooses to reveal himself to save his friends. And like they did from the start, the two sea monsters ride together. And in the end, with the help of Julia and her dad, Massimo, the townspeople learn to accept those based on who they are, not what they look like. Oh. And they do win the race, which is great. But dang, this is a beautiful story about acceptance and being true to yourself. And yes, while not overtly mentioned, this has to be an allegory for LGBTQ plus acceptance in a beautiful and fairly light way. And seeing the two older ladies from the beginning also turn out to be sea monsters just adds to the notion of how long some have waited to be their true authentic selves for fear of persecution. In this small scale lighter story, seeing that adds so much to this movie. That is really good. It's a bit light and smaller scale, but it is so good at telling the story that it comes out and sets out to do. And yes, while Alberto, Luca, and Julia get into you know their old beat-up Vespa, it's a huge moment. I didn't know I needed more than this, but when Alberto sells their Vespa so Luca can go to school, and he decides to stay in the small Italian village, and while they're apart, you know, you know, and just can feel that they'll be reunited every summer at least. Like, gosh darn, <laughs> having feels just rethinking about it. Like, there's that line of, oh, I can't deal without you. And you kind of feel like, oh, how are they going to, you know, be themselves in this new scary world by themselves? And yes, Luca has Julia. And yes, Alberto has, you know, Massimo and Luca's family and, you know, that whole town. Oh, it's so, it's so much. Um, but, and, and this is really important, make sure to watch the credits. The story moments that are told over images throughout the beginning part of the credits are super nice and help out to it. And there is a really nice fun end moment. If you want a little more Sasha Baron Cohen, who once again 
is like only in the beginning, but he's in the end for a little more. And I wish we got more of him. I don't know if they're going to make a sequel to Luca. I don't think they have to, but if they did, hopefully there'd be a little more Sasha Baron going. I've been struggling to sort out where to rate this movie. I kind of came into it assuming that I would like it and end up with four stars. I think I really do have to keep it at four stars. I have never put a movie at five stars yet on Letterboxd. Four and a half is going to have to be like the best of the best. And while I really love this movie, it really is nice. I think I'm going to have to keep it at four stars for now. I, It really is strong and beautiful and fun. And while the smaller scale is really nice, I think calling it perfect for me is a bit much. But yes, watch this movie. You, you know what? I am going to go 4.5 stars. This movie is amazing. Go watch on Disney Plus for a perfect summer movie to get you back into school before August ends. I know, 4.5 stars for me sounds pretty gosh darn good. It's up there with Matrix and like Fellowship of the Rings and some of my favorite movies, including Coco. But the emotional resonance here and the really nice story it tells and all the Italian stuff that I enjoyed, this movie was so good for me. So just to recap, Letterboxd movie ratings, Ryan the Last Dragon, Three and a half stars, Luca, four and a half stars. Surprising for Luca, I know. I, I mean, I, heck, I even might say Ryan the Last Dragon's a little high, but for now, it's fine. We'll see if we change that, but I am very happy keeping Luca at four and a half stars now. That may change, but I feel like that probably won't. Well, like I said, a more wholesome episode for this week. Fingers crossed I get through my part two of The Walking Dead next week so we can be all caught up on the outstanding, you know, multi-part episodes that I have for you. I know we're going to have at least one episode in the book before we get that episode out in the latest season, but that's okay. You know, we can get ready for the final season of the zombie TV show that spawned many more of, you know, inferior brain dead series. Yeah, we're still sticking with those jokes when we can. I did the same thing for Mandalorian. We saw season one. We talked about it a little bit about season two and what was to come. So we can do it again for Walking Dead. But I hope you enjoyed this trip down Disney Plus Drive for some lovely animated fare. What do you think of Luca, Raya and the Last Dragon, or if you've already paid for it, Cruella, a movie I hope to talk about in the not-too-distant future with a live-action Disney episode? Who knows? There's a couple 101 Dalmatian movies with Glenn Close we can talk about in that, too. But either way, let me know on social, either knickknackmovies or knickknack underscore IC on Twitter, TikTok, Letterbox and Instagram. Well, cheers, and as always, until next time, cinephiles. Are you not entertained? I think this is going to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I don't like goodbyes. Let's just call this See You Later, Alligator.